What a blessing it is to be here this morning to see each one. It's been a wonderful weekend and looking forward to rounding out this weekend with a good time in God's Word. I want to echo what Brother Brian said. You ought to think of the things you've heard, whether it's been in this service, the songs we've sung, or what you've heard over the weekend. You might be in the position of almost persuaded, but I pray that you would not let that pass even today. Because almost is not too far from God. Whether you're almost believing or whether you've strayed or wherever you find yourself this morning, we're going to look that God can do great things through anyone's life. And so I pray that even for you. I do want to start out again just by reiterating how proud I am of this church body. The conference was great. All of the work that was done does not go unnoticed. I received many, many compliments uh, from uh, different brethren that came, most of them echoing the same. says, your church is awesome. And I said, amen, it is. <laughs> I love this body. love this church and what God has done through it. So again, thank you. And I know we're, we're exhausted little bit drained, but at the same time, we're full and we're excited, right? It's that kind of balance that comes with things like this. And so I don't plan on holding us very long this morning, but we do commit to come and open the scripture and see what the Lord has for us. So we'll do that this morning uh, for the time that we have. We've been focusing on different topics over the last few months. Since we finished our study in Romans, uh, we've kind of been visiting different areas, and I think that has its place in the church. I mean, there ought to be a time when we talk about marriage or end times or how to deal with worry. I think that's needful because those are the things that we face, right? So it's good to kind of zoom in sometimes and just see what the Bible has to say specifically about those things. However, what should be the bread and butter, if you will, of the church and what the call of Scripture is to every pastor is to preach the Word. Right? We are called to preach the word, verse by verse, book by book. That's how a church grows and becomes grounded. When a church has a steady diet of the scripture and the scripture alone, that makes us stronger. That makes us healthy and vibrant. Because the word is preached. And beloved, that is what we were founded on from the start, right? Ever since we became a church, there has been a commitment in the teachers, a commitment in my ministry, at least, to preach the Word of God, to not shy away from it, but to preach it. And so, though we may go to different topics from time to time, we will always come back to preaching the Word of God. And we're going to return to that this morning, and we're going to start a study through another book of the Bible, and that book is the book of James, the book of James. So turn there if you would. Hopefully this won't take four years like Romans did, or four or five years like Ephesians did. I say that, but I'm not in a hurry either. The Bible says what it says, and there is much for us to learn as we simply go through the Bible and see what it says, right? So this morning I want to just introduce the book, give some background on it. Focus in on a couple things before we dive in in the next couple weeks. And so, just want to turn your attention to the first verse of the first chapter. It's where we'll be spending our time this morning. James 1, verse 1. 
The Bible says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. I hope the Lord will add His blessing to the reading this morning and help us to have open hearts as we look to this book. It's a familiar book to us. We've walked through it before in classes. I believe we did that a couple years ago. Brother Bob, I think, did, if I remember right. And we love it, right? James is just one of those books that kind of stands out. It's easy to understand. You don't have to have a big theological thinking cap like some of these books that you do, you know. It's pretty easy to understand. It's pretty practical, too. It's, it's, I've heard it described as where the rubber meets the road book. Like you take theology and this is how you live it out. James, boom, puts it right there in a way that we can understand it. And whether we realize it or not, we pull a lot of one-liners from it. Uh, Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. That's from here. Or uh, count it all joy when you go through trials. Um, uh, The passages about bridling your tongue, they're all here. And some other ones maybe you didn't realize were there but are in here. We pull a lot of one-liners from it. And aside from the sayings of Jesus, because those are ultimate, right? Aside from the sayings of Jesus, this would, in my opinion, be the New Testament version of Proverbs. You go into the Old Testament, Proverbs is just... That's why it's so hard to preach from Proverbs, by the way. It's just like one verse, boom, another verse. Just want these, these one-liner sayings that are full of wisdom. James is very much that way. He just makes these statements, and they're practical and easy for us to understand. Very wise, very direct. He takes the truth of God and he applies it to everyday life. Like, like, look, this is what you believe, here's how you live it out. He takes the sayings of Jesus, the principles Jesus lays down, and expounds upon them, which, by the way, is what all the New Testament writers do. They take the sayings and teachings of Jesus and they expand them through the work of the Holy Spirit, leading their heart. And so we find a lot of things that apply to our life. James also has a lot to say about your faith and putting it to the test. Like, you say your faith is real, okay, here's how it should look. Here's how it should be lived out. So we'll see some of that as we go. And again, I just want to introduce the book and give a bit of background this morning as we begin to take our first steps. James is the first book written in the New Testament, not Matthew. You know that your Bible is not necessarily placed in chronological order. It's especially the New Testament. Got to have the Gospels first because that's Jesus, right? So we got the four Gospels that come first, and then the rest are placed in order of uh, length or size. And James is a pretty small book there towards the end of the New Testament, but that doesn't mean it was like one of the last ones written. Actually, it was the first one written. Probably about 15 years or so after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so many of the people he's writing to probably saw Jesus. They probably heard his ministry. Or they might have been around on the day of Pentecost. So some of these things we read in the book of Acts were kind of fresh in their minds. And many people probably had experienced it. The Gospels didn't come for another 15 years or so after James. So if you think about it, this letter would have been passed around to the different churches and it was pretty important because of who it came from and what it said. 
This is, might have been one of the first major communications giving out to the churches. And it's fitting, right, that it's a practical book. Like, here's how you guys need to live. Verse 1 there says, he writes to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Okay, well, what does that mean? So who's it written to? Who is the 12 tribes? Is he writing to the nation of Israel who's scattered around? Well, maybe indirectly, but if they would read it, the, the idea would be to convert them to Christianity because there had been a change. Most professing Jews at the time of Christ were put off by that very phrase in verse 1, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King Messiah who is Jesus. And most of Israel at that time looked at Jesus and says, He's not our King. In fact, what did they say at the cross? We have no king but who? Caesar. They rejected Jesus. No, not him. He doesn't look like what we want. He's not the one who we think he should be. So no, we're not going to accept him as Messiah. But not all rejected. In fact, most of the early church were Jewish people who believed in Jesus as Messiah and became part of the church. In fact, that's what it was meant to be. It was meant to be a seamless blending of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament is there. It all portrays Christ. It all talks about Him. He comes on the scene and it was meant to bring together Israel and the world in the church. All founded by, paid for the, by the blood of Christ. The problem was the Old Covenant, uh, those who held to the Old Covenant did not accept Him. And so he turns away and he goes to the world, right? But there were still Jewish believers who believed in him and followed him. In fact, most of the early church were made up of them. And now Israel sits under judgment. That's Romans chapter 11, if you want to read that. The branches were cut off and a wild tree was grafted in. That's us, and thank God for that. Thank God that the gospel goes to the whole world. It's not a national thing. It's not a race thing. God loves everyone. He so loved the world and whosoever believes. That's what we stand on, right? God loves the Israelites. God loves Americans. God loves Africans. God loves the human race, period. And He wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what the Scripture says, right? And that is what the church is for, to gather all, how does it put it in Revelations? My mind's getting rusty. All tongues, tribes, and nations are praising Him in heaven. That's amazing. Every walk of life, every color of skin, doesn't matter. That's what this is for. And James is writing to those people who have believed and followed Him. He's writing to the church. But it says they're scattered. Why are they scattered? Well, what happened to the church in the book of Acts? More specifically, who happened to the church in the book of Acts? Remember Saul? Changed his name to Paul? Go to Acts chapter 8. We're going to turn to just a few scriptures this morning where I want you to see why, why are they scattered? Why is the church scattered at this time? And what happened to that? Well, just to give you a little background, going up to Acts chapter 8, the church at Jerusalem was massive. 
I mean, there's some estimates, 30, 40, 50,000 members um, by the time Acts chapter 8 comes along. Because you've got to think, at Pentecost, how many were saved? Remember the number? 3,000. And then it goes on a little bit longer in uh, Acts chapter 4 or 5, I believe. It says there's 5,000 added. So right there, you've got 8,000. And if that's just counting the men, if, they, if everyone had a wife, you're at 16,000 and maybe some kids. This was a massive church. Massive. Well, let's see what happens in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at, at that time, there was great persecution against the church at Jerusalem. And they were scattered abroad throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial, made great lamentation over him. Verse 3. And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. Don't miss verse 4. And they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. How do you think churches were started in all these different places? Because they went preaching the word. You see, Saul came in and he brought such a great persecution that he scattered the church and, and that church at Jerusalem went into all the regions around about them, which is what they were supposed to do at the start, but they didn't. You see, sometimes we get comfortable. I can only imagine what it was like at that church. Just this massive amount of people. The praise services must have been great. And it says they had everything in common. They're helping each other. But they forgot something Jesus told them, didn't they? In fact, in Acts chapter 1, he says, you're going to be witnesses of me where? In Jerusalem only? He says, no. Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria unto the uttermost parts of the earth. The problem is they stayed there. So God has his own way of taking care of things. He sends Saul, and guess what? They scatter to, what does it say in verse 1? To the regions of Judea and Samaria. He gets them out and he gets them going. And he uses uh, Saul of Tarsus to do that. But that's why they were scattered. That's why they're in throughout all of these different areas because persecution came on the church and they leave Jerusalem and they go out into these different areas preaching the word as they go. And in fact, there's another um, thing that happens in Acts chapter 18. I'll read it to you. Acts 18 and verse 2, it says this, And he found certain, a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Listen. Because Claudius, who was Caesar had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome. They got kicked out of Rome, and so now they're scattered in all these different areas too. That's why they're scattered. He's not just writing willy-nilly to people who may read it wherever they're at. No, he's writing to the church which had been scattered from Jerusalem because of persecution. Whether from governmental or from religious persecution, they were scattered. So it's a circular letter that was passed out to the churches in these different areas. Churches who had faced persecution. Maybe they had suffered loss of family members or family had been put in prison. I don't know. It doesn't say. But he says he writes to, to these people who are scattered. Believers who are scattered. That's the setting for the book. First letter written is written to the scattered church, has some very practical things that James writes. But what I want to finish up with this morning is focusing in on the author. 
Because who writes this is important. We spend a lot of time studying the character of Paul, right? Who wrote uh, the second most in the uh, New Testament. Luke is actually the one who writes the most in the New Testament. But Paul, we spend a lot of time with him because it's pretty important, his character and his story, right? Well, so it is with James. So I want to spend just a little bit of time looking at that because it has meaning for us. And so we'll spend time with that first word in verse 1, James. All he says here, turn back to James if you would, because I'd like you to see this. James 1 and 1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That sounds so good in English. Oh, like he's, he's just placed his life in service and, and he's being a servant. Like, I don't know if you get the idea of maybe a butler or something like that. Well, that English translation fails to tell us the depth of what James is saying here. The Greek word for servant is doulos. And maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you've studied it out before. And in fact, when the word servant is used in most of the New Testament, it is this same word doulos. You know what a direct translation would be? Slave. Ooh, we don't like that one so much, do we? James, a slave of God. And of the Lord Jesus Christ? That doesn't sound as cute. (laughs) That doesn't sound as nice. But that's what he says. Another way we could translate it, and maybe some of yours do, is a bond servant. You know what this means? And what what the word doulos means as well? It means somebody who places their self in service to another to pay off a debt. We see that principle in the Old Testament. One could do that to pay off a debt or uh, even just they could do that for the rest of their life if they wanted to. But that's what it means. Somebody who willingly places themselves in that position to be put under another person to either work off a debt or to place their life in that position. And Paul, actually, that's the most descriptive, the most, that's the word he uses the most to describe himself. Paul, a servant of Christ. Paul, a servant of God. And though it may sound off to our ears, it's one of the greatest titles we can hold, isn't it? There's some titles I'm pretty proud of. Dad. I like that. Husband. Pastor. But one that is bigger and better than that is if I was to say, hey, I'm a servant of God. I'm a bond servant to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I have placed myself willingly under His direction, under His headship, because there is a debt that I can never pay that He paid for me. That's what James is saying. James, a servant of God. So who is this James? Where did he come from? Does he just show up, or do we see anything about him in Scripture? And I want to just finish this morning with three things to think about. First thing is James was Jesus' earthly family. James was part of Jesus' earthly family. Now, we have some immovable, indisputable, inarguable doctrines, right, from Scripture, like the deity of Jesus Christ. We don't move. You can walk in these doors, you can say what you want, but you don't agree on the deity of Jesus Christ, that He was God in the flesh, that He is eternal God, the Son. We're going to have a problem, right? (laughs) Because the Bible's pretty clear on that. And one of those doctrines is the virgin birth of Christ. We don't 
talk about that so much, maybe when it comes around Christmas time, maybe here and there, but that, that's an immovable doctrine. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, unlike anyone else ever has been or ever will be. It was a special thing as the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and it was a supernatural birth. As it was prophesied in Scripture and as we see record in that. That means He did not have an earthly father. Therefore, the sin nature was not passed on to Him from earthly seed. He was born of heaven, but also born of the Virgin Mary. You don't move on that, right? Because if that's not true, we have a problem. But there's a false doctrine that has come out of that. And one that has zero scriptural base and one that is false. And that is what's called the perpetual virginity of Mary. Anybody ever heard of that? That Mary was a perpetual virgin. That's not true. It's just flat out not true because her and Joseph had other kids after Jesus. And the Bible says so. And turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. In verse 53, the Bible says this, It came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, He departed, and when He was come into His own country, He taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom in these mighty works? Look at now. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren or brothers, James, Joseph, and Simon, and Judas, or Jude? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where did he get this stuff from? The people in his own town say, who is this guy? We know his dad. He's the carpenter. We know his mom. It's Mary. And his brothers are James, Joseph, Simon, Jude, Judas. And his sisters? This is the James who writes the book of James. A half-brother, I guess we could call him that, an earthly half-brother of Jesus, a son of Joseph and Mary. Joseph and Mary had sons and daughters, clearly from Scripture here, after Jesus was born, and James is part of that family. Think of growing up in that household. That's got... If there's a holy household, it's got to be that one, right? Now, I believe both Mary and Joseph were faithful people. That's why God chose them. Mary was a faithful woman, and I believe Joseph was a faithful man. I mean, to me, it'd be pretty important to entrust the care of my son to a godly, faithful man, right? And I believe Joseph was that, and I believe Mary was a faithful woman. And I believe they raised Jesus right, although it probably wasn't that hard. I don't know if they, they ever had to get after him. No, probably not. He probably only cried when he was either hungry or needed to be changed. You know babies cry more than that. Most of the time they want to be held or something like I don't think Jesus did that. He was perfect. Or as a toddler, he probably didn't disobey. Well, I better walk that back. He didn't disobey because there was no sin nature in him. But I still believe Joseph and Mary did the best they could to raise him. And I have no doubt they wouldn't have done any different with their other kids. 
Did they only give Jesus the attention and not James and his brothers and sisters? No, I believe they raised all of their kids to the best they could to raise them right. So James was in a good household. I wonder if he ever got mad because Jesus never got in trouble. <laughs> Why am I in trouble? Why not Jesus? Because he's perfect son. <laughs> Doesn't do anything wrong. Be more like Jesus. <laughs> we say that all the time. They got to see it and hear it. Why can't you be more like your brother? <laughs> Did Mary and Joseph tell the other kids the story? Like, why he's special? Maybe. I don't know. But I do know that of all the households to be raised in, this is the one to pick. Right? I don't think it could have got much better to be raised in that household with those parents and with Jesus in the house. So it, you would think it'd be a given that all his brothers and sisters would believe. They've got holy parents and holy God as a brother, whether they fully understood it or not, but he's there in the house. You would think, well, they should all be believers, right? You're related to Jesus. You have all the right things in line. You have everything there that you need. But beloved, those things don't make you a believer, does it? Family doesn't save you. The right circumstances doesn't save you. Holy people that you might be related to doesn't save you, and you cannot rest on that. We need to be careful. Parents, we cannot rest on our faithfulness to suppose and expect that our kids are going to get saved so that we kind of just lax off. Well, I raised my kids in church, and I'm doing the right thing. Well, okay, that's good. But you still need to pray each and every day that the Lord speaks to their heart and when He does, they answer. Because they need to have a personal relationship. You might have lined some things up better for them, but there still needs to come that time and us parents should be telling them, hey, there's going to come a day when the Lord speaks to your heart and tells you you're lost and you need salvation. You listen when that day comes. And when He does, here's what you do. You place your faith in Him. You believe in Him. You ask Him to save you. Don't rest on our righteousness to carry our kids into heaven. It helps get them there, but there comes a day when they have to make that choice. Understand? And kids, your parents' faith does not save you. My parents' faith didn't save me, even though I was born and raised a Baptist. And the right kind didn't save me. There was a time I had to place my own faith in the Savior. Why do I say that? Because even though Jesus, uh, James was Jesus' earthly family, James was not a believer. James was not a believer. I don't know if you knew that. Maybe you did. Perhaps you didn't. But the Scripture is pretty clear. John chapter 7. The Gospel of John in chapter 7. He had all the right things lined up. He was in the right household with the right people. But notice what it says in John chapter 7 and verse 5. Actually, we'll go up to verse 2, just get a little bit of it. Now the Jews, John 7 and verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren, his brothers, his family, therefore said to him, 
Depart hence and go to Judea, that thy disciples may also see the works which thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. That's not like, hey, it's probably a good idea. Let's help you. Let's go. No, that's not the tone of what they're saying. If you are who you say you are, go tell everybody. And let it be seen. If, if this is what the truth is, go up there and tell them. Why do they say that? Verse 5. For neither did his brothers believe in him. Neither did his brothers believe in him. That's important. They didn't believe him. In fact, let me read to you from Mark chapter 3. Here's what they thought of him. Mark chapter 3 and verse 20 says this. The multitude cometh together again, so they could not so much as eat bread. And when his family heard it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, he is beside himself. Here's what they thought. They thought he was out of his mind. Yeah, that's my crazy brother Jesus. He thinks he's Messiah or something. He's always talking about this stuff, and all these people are coming to see him, but oh, I think he's off. That's what James thought of Jesus. Again, just because your family goes to church does not make you a believer. Just because you go to church with other believers does not save you. James, again, was raised in the right place by the right people, and that's what he said of Jesus. He did not believe him. He thought he was out of his mind. He heard what Jesus said every day. He heard what he said when he began his ministry. And the scripture says that he thought he was crazy. So how on earth does this guy write a book of the Bible? <laughs> how do you get from there to writing a book of the Bible? It's a pretty amazing thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians 15. Verse 3 is where we'll pick it up as we move to a close. Verse 3 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Paul writing here to the church of Corinth, he says, For I deliver unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas, Peter, then of the twelve. After that He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of who? James. And then of all the apostles. You ever read over that and not think about it? We usually focus in on the Peter part, right? Because that's kind of what converted Peter back. But he says he, he went to James. Much like he went to Peter. Look, we don't have a record of that conversation. I don't know what he said to James. I can only imagine. But I believe it kind of went the same as the conversation with Peter. And I believe it had the same effect on James as it did with the rest of the disciples because it tells us in John chapter 2 that when he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said to them and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. The resurrection was the light switch for the disciples. He is who he says he was. 
Everything he said is true because we've seen it with our own eyes. Beloved, I believe the same happened with James. It all makes, you are who you said you are. It all makes sense now. Everything. And I believe he came to faith as a result of that. I say this because of the effect I see it had on his life and what I see in Scripture. Turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Again, I don't know if these are things you've ever noticed in Scripture before, but it's pretty amazing. Acts chapter 1 and verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room. This is the upper room, right? Pretty important place. Where abode both Peter, James, different one. That's John's brother. Peter, James, and John. Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and James, the son of Alphaeus, different James. And Simon the Zealot, and Jude, Judas, the brother of James, And these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren or his brothers. James is in the upper room. James is in the upper room. How did he know how to go there? Well, he had to be present at some pretty important passages of Scripture like the Great Commission. And the command to go and wait in Luke chapter 24. I'll read that to you for sake of time. Luke 24 and 33 says this. They rose up the same hour, returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them. There were some other people gathered with the eleven when Jesus comes and reveals Himself and gives some commands like the Great Commission and... uh, the command to wait at Jerusalem till the Spirit comes on high. I believe James was there because Jesus went to him after his resurrection. James was there when the Holy Spirit came in power on the church and when there were supernatural gifts of languages given. Maybe he got the gift too. We don't say for sure, but James was there. What an amazing change. But it doesn't stop there. You know what else happens and. We'll leave the verses for another time, but in Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 21, Galatians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 2, James is called a pillar of the church at Jerusalem. He is named as an elder. They come to him for counsel. He writes a letter to the rest of the churches. You know what? It is very possible James became the pastor at the church of Jerusalem because the way he has talked about is in that kind of a capacity. Maybe not, but he is certainly an elder at the church of Jerusalem, a pillar of that church, as Galatians says. From mocking Jesus to leading the church. From scoffing at Jesus to believing in Him. From not believing in Jesus to writing a book of the Bible itself. Listen, beloved, do not ever underestimate what God can do in a life. You write people off, be careful, because I would have written James off. You're going to say that about Jesus? He's out of his mind? You're out of your mind. But what does Jesus do? He goes to him in grace and gives him another chance 
And that changes his life, doesn't it? Sometimes we look at people and we'll say, they'll never believe. They're too far gone. Yeah, you can try to witness. I tried witnessing to them for years and they just think I'm crazy. They want nothing to do with it. They're too far gone. Their attitude's too bad. You could have said the same thing about James too, right? Yeah, he'll never come. But amazing things can happen when someone meets Jesus. Lives can be changed eternally. And some of you know that by experience, right? I'm sure there were people in your life that might have written you off. So that guy's never going to believe that. Girl's never going to believe. But thank God for faithful witnesses that loved you enough to keep asking you. Or to keep loving you. And keep having grace on you, right? And then God changed your life when you came face to face with Jesus. You know people... God can do that too in your life today. I know people that God can change their life and do amazing things with them if I just wouldn't write them off and say, oh, they'll never believe. Because look what he did with James. Amazing things, right? Don't count others out. You keep praying for them. You keep loving them. You keep witnessing. You let Jesus worry about working on their heart. Probably that's one of the things we got to realize when we try to witness to people. I can't change their hearts. I can just be the vehicle for the Word. You let the Holy Spirit deal with them. You let God work on their heart, but let us be faithful in witnessing to them. I want to be like Andrew. One of those apostles doesn't get a lot of play in Scripture, but every time we see him, you know what he's doing? He's bringing people to Jesus. He's bringing Peter. He's bringing Nathaniel. He's just bringing people to Jesus. That's what I want to do. I don't care if you think he's crazy. You come with me and you listen. Because I love you. And you need to hear this. We keep praying. We keep loving. The Holy Spirit will do His job. You let Jesus change their life because He can. Do you believe that this morning? So if you do, let's not throw our hands up and walk away. He can do that for James. He can do it for others. And listen, He can do that for you too. I I do want to reiterate that you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. You need to uh, have a point in your life where you bowed before Him in forgiveness for your sins and placing your faith in Him. Don't get comfortable with family ties. James had the best family ties and he still needed to get saved, didn't he? I could boast of my family ties and my family history within the work of God. I'm a third generation Baptist. That didn't save me. I needed to believe just as each one of you needs to believe in your own heart. I pray that you have a personal experience with Jesus. I pray that you can look back to the day Jesus saved you. And if not, even today would be that day for you. It doesn't matter your background. doesn't matter your state of life right now. God can take you. and God can change your life always for the better. And He can do great things with you just as He did with James. What an amazing story we have before us in this author. God can take him, change him, and now he becomes 
a writer of a holy scripture. Don't underestimate what God can do with others in your life or what God can do with your life. It's simply a matter of placing your faith in Him. Would you? Would you let Him change your life? I pray that you would. Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you for this day, for the many blessings you've given us. I pray that you would use these words spoken this morning and use them to your pleasure, that you would just do the work in our hearts we cannot do, but you can. If there's one who does not know you as Savior, Lord, I pray that you would draw them. They would cry out in faith to you even today. If there is one who is not part of your body, that you would draw them as well, or whatever the case may be, Lord, help us to follow you in faith. I ask all of this in the mighty, wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.